Gordon Guthrie Chang is a well-known opinion writer, book author, and graduate of Cornell Law School. His father was born in China. His mother is of Scottish ancestry. Gordon Chang was born in Long Branch, New Jersey, and grew up 25 miles outside of New York City. At Columbia High School in Maplewood, New Jersey, he was president of his class. Mr. Chang spent almost two decades in China, where he practiced international law. In the past 20 years, he has appeared regularly in the American media. Gordon Chang was the author of The Coming Collapse of China in 2001. We discussed with him if he's still sticking by that prediction. Gordon Chang, you wrote a book 21 years ago that said China was going to collapse in the next few years. What happened? Yeah, um, in 2001, um, the book said that the Communist Party would fall from power in a decade. Um, so I'm out of time. Um, I didn't foresee a lot of things, um, but the most important was the 2008 downturn, um, which gave the Chinese regime um, some strength, gave it some confidence, and it uh, shook confidence in the West. And so um, I think that that was the primary reason why I was wrong. When do you think it will happen if you still do? I still think that it will happen. Um, what we're seeing right now um, are uh, signs of instability. Um, and actually revolutionary sentiments in uh, the Chinese people. So, for instance, um, in these extraordinary protests that started at the end of October over the COVID restrictions, um, people were, of course, complaining about the lockdowns. But as we saw, especially after the November 24th fire in Urumqi, people were on the streets chanting, uh, down with Xi Jinping, down with the Communist Party. And that's uh, um, something that uh, shook the party. Um, this is this is important because you know a lot of people compare um, these recent protests with 1989, when there were demonstrations in about 370 Chinese cities and of course Beijing. But I think a better comparison was 1949, and the reason is in 1989, um, people they did not challenge Communist Party rule. They wanted Premier Li Peng, uh, a hardliner, to step aside. They wanted the party to open up, but they felt the party should rule China. Um, if you go back to 1949, very different situation. Chiang Kai-shek's nationalists were so much, would you look at the metrics, were so much stronger than the communists, but they failed. And they failed because, as the great China historian Yu Yongshu said, the nationalists lost people's hearts. And today, it's the Communist Party that has lost hearts. Yes, it can stay in power because it can imprison, it can coerce, it can intimidate, but it can't persuade. And that means um, we're going to see some incident that is going to trigger protests like we saw at the end of November. And this is just going to continue. The party, I think, is on a limited timeline. Can you remember when you first got interested in being a China expert? Um, that's a long time ago. Um, I was practicing law um, in Shanghai uh, with my wife, and um, I was working for the great Jerry Cohn, um, Paul Weiss. And, and Jerry always 
love to write about uh, things, China business and, and whatever. And so he got me interested in writing. And so one thing led to another. So it's been all downhill since I met Jerry. When was the first piece that you wrote that was recognized and people started noticing that you were somewhat of an authority on China? I don't know if that's happened up to now anyway. So, <laughs> um, uh, but, uh, you know, all I can say is that I started writing um, at the um, end of the 1990s um, and enjoyed it and um, just of sort of it. it a passion became a career. You know, my wife says, well, of course, I'm in retirement. So this is like busier than when I was practicing law. Um, and I'm still, um, you know, in, in all seriousness, um, I don't think that um, I have much influence in the current administration. I mean, zero influence. So that's why I, I answered the way I did to your question. Go back to the beginning. How did your dad get to the United States and why? Great question. Um, my dad was a student in Jiaotong University in Shanghai. Well, he, he grew up in a, in a town called Rugo, which is in Jiangsu province, north of the Yangtze River. Um, went to school in Shanghai. And that's the time that the Japanese were attacking um, China. And along with tens of millions of other Chinese, he was pushed westward. Um, and it was a great flow of humanity, um, one of the great tragedies in, in Chinese history. Um, my dad was fortunate enough to take a national exam, um, got a scholarship to um, the United States. He um, actually was examined by Chiang Kai-shek, who was a row of students. Um, and my dad tells the story. My dad, um, he had, uh, I noticed that one of his ears had a pierce. Um, and, uh, you know, my dad being, um, my dad, I didn't think he'd be one wearing earrings. But he said um, when he was very young, his, his parents pierced his ear. Um, and the reason is that uh, at that time, that it was felt that the gods would take away um, boys. And so um, it was a practice in China of that time to put an earring on, on boys so that the gods would skip over uh, and, let, and let them live. But anyway, um, so Chiang Kai-shek's in, in, um, reviewing the line with my dad in it. And my dad, uh, my dad noticed that Chiang Kai-shek noticed that he had a piercing in his ear. And my dad noticed that Chiang Kai-shek had a piercing in his ear. Um, so in any event, uh, my dad got the scholarship after the inspection. Um, he flew over the hump, uh, over the Himalayas to India, boarded a Liberty ship, which went down to Australia before then going up to the port of San Pedro in California. The reason why it took such a circuitous route was to avoid Japanese submarines. My dad landed in February 1945 in L.A., had a couple days to spend with a friend of his who'd also got a scholarship. So a, a woman cab driver, because the cab drivers then were, were women, um, took him around and, and um, she said to him, would you like to see the homes of the stars? And my dad, not knowing anything, said yes. So they actually went to Mary Pickford's house. Mary Pickford wasn't there. But they did go to Charlie Chaplin's house and the great man himself answered the front door 
And uh, after a little short conversation, because Charlie Chaplin was very gracious, even to two, you know, obviously poor Chinese students, um, my dad came away. And, and the one thing he told me about that encounter was that Charlie Chaplin was short, <laughs> which is important because my dad was short. So anyway, to make a very long story short, um, they took the, the transcontinental railway, went to Cornell. My dad got his master's in civil engineering in 1946. And there's a story after that, but uh, <laughs> much too long to tell. What was it like for you growing up in New Jersey? And I heard you one time say that you were so different, you looked different than other people and that you were going to school with, but I also noted that uh, you were president of your class, so you must have been popular. I was vice president of my high school and president of my um, high school. Um, and yeah, I was different and got you know, all little kids who are different in any way get a hard time. Um, but of course, if you're Chinese, you get a little bit of rough about it, but nothing serious. And, um, you know, I just got along um, with everybody. Um, you know, it's, it's uh, you know, it's, it's something which, um, you know, I, I don't think about very much um, because I had a really, you know, at, at school, I had a happy time. Um, you know, kids are kids. And, um after they give you a hard time for a little while, they then become your friends. And so it was great. Where did your father meet your mother, who I understand is deceased? <clears throat> yes, but my mom died in 1959 of cancer. Uh, and my dad died in 2015 when he was 98. Um, it, they met at Riverside Church in New York City. It was sort of like a mixer. And... Um, my dad's pretty sketchy on the details, so you now know everything I know. You, you did say in something that I saw that you, you had a troubled past with him, or you had a troubled relationship with him? I was the first born, and I was a boy, and um, Chinese household, um, that confers special responsibilities. Um, and I was teaching my dad what it was like to live in America. And my dad was teaching me what it was like to grow up in a Chinese household. So, yeah, there was friction. Um, but, um, you know, my wife um, um, was very good. She, she said to me, um, and this was maybe about 10 years before he died, um, he said, uh, your dad's not going to live, you know, forever. And it's important that you reconcile with him because if you don't, you will regret it for the rest of your life. And as difficult as things were at some times, um, her advice was right. So we did reconcile. And um, I mean, it, was, it wasn't terrible, you know, um, but you know, there's just that friction. Um, um, and so we were, we were on very good terms when he died. And where did they meet? She was not Chinese, I understand. Yeah, she she was American of uh, Scottish descent. Um, she came from a long from a family with a long line of um, uh, um, uh, ministers in New York, uh, Episcopalians, um, and um, they after they met in New York City, um, they got married and they moved to Keensburg, New Jersey, which is a town on the south coast of New York New York Bay, um, which is a 
basically a, a town which was once prosperous, devastated by a hurricane in the early part of the 20th century, um, and never recovered. Um, and so that's that's where we started. And my dad, you know, it's interesting that the, when he was in Keensburg, um, even though he had gotten his master's in civil engineering, that's the sort of like the last thing that he wanted to do with his life. So in the garage of um, home, he actually set up a, a like a three or four table restaurant, Chinese restaurant, and it failed miserably. Um, um, we still, you know, have the pottery from it, um, blue and white teapots and stuff like that. Um, but what my dad did was after the failure of the restaurant, he then started working for engineering consulting firms in New York City, got a job with public service electric and gas, which is the utility in northern New Jersey. But at 55, first day of eligible, um, eligibility for early retirement, he was out the door. And uh, he started a takeout restaurant in Madison, New Jersey. Takeout, just just as a counter, actually. They turned it into a restaurant, he and my stepmom. And they then moved into a bigger place. And so it was a very, it was, he was doing exactly what he wanted to do, um, which was to be a restaurateur. He bought a building in, in Madison sparked the rejuvenation of the town center and, um, you know, became a prominent person in town. So only in America does stuff like that happen. Well, because you've been close to Chinese and close to Americans, is there any way to describe the difference in the way Americans think and Chinese think? I know that's there's a lot of people involved, but what would you say to that question? Oh, yeah. Um, there are people who can answer that question a lot better than I do, um, because the people have done um, all sorts of studies about the way Chinese view, for instance, pictures um, and, and the way that Americans view them. So, you know, I, I don't hold me to this, but like if you have a picture of an aquarium, um, they say the Americans will see the fish and the Chinese will see the water. You know, <laughs> I don't know if that's true or not, um, but, you know. I, I think we we do think differently um, because we are Americans, um, and we have a very different history than than China does. Um, so we are much more individualistic. Um, we think ourselves willful and able to change things. The Chinese, um, I think, to a large extent, are a little bit more collectivist. Not as much as people say. Um, because we're, we're seeing actually in China some pretty individualistic um, attitudes and, and behavior. But, um, you know, I, I think that Americans are, are certainly um, more confident, maybe, about themselves. Let me ask you about the atmosphere that we seem to be in. Now, correct me if I'm off base, but we seem to be hearing through the media and maybe even what you're saying uh, from time to time, that we're headed to war with China. And I'm tr I look through the numbers, and I want you to fill in the blank. I look through the numbers. Just give you one example. There are 800 American bases around the world. A couple hundred thousand American soldiers and airmen and Navy. If I read correctly, there's one base that belongs to the Chinese outside of China. That alone, you just look at it and you say, why are they such a threat? 
and from your perspective, what what is what do you see down the next ten years? Yeah, I'm extremely concerned um, because there's been an obvious breakdown in deterrence. And if you look at the metrics, the United States is a far more powerful country than China. Um, whether you're talking about economy, size of military, um, technological advancements, all of them, you know, are in our column. But for um, Xi Jinping, the Chinese ruler, I don't think it really matters um, because he believes that China is ascendant, um, that the United States is in terminal decline, and that he can do what he wants. Um, and we don't really have to speculate too much. We can see like the trend of Chinese propaganda, which tells us what uh, Chinese leaders are thinking. So, for instance, um, after the chaotic withdrawal from Afghanistan, that confirmed in the mind of Xi Jinping that the United States was done. And um, I think it also um, probably influenced Vladimir Putin. Um, you know, President Biden was warning Russia not to invade Ukraine. And matter of fact, you know, when you look at talking about size and power and how that doesn't matter, um, in 2021, the coalition, the members of the coalition that were arrayed against Putin, the United States, 27 nations of the European Union and Great Britain, in 2021, we collectively had an economy that was 25.1 times larger than Russia's, overwhelmingly more powerful. Um, and yet we failed to deter Putin because Putin didn't think any of that was important. He doesn't, you know, he thinks national will is the critical factor. And I have to agree with him. Um, so he was not deterred from invading Ukraine. And we have seen very aggressive Chinese behavior. Um, you know, take the month of December. Um, there was uh, the Chinese incursion into Arunachal Pradesh. Um, they have now started to reclaim islands in the, um, in the Spratly chain in the South China Sea that were uninhabited and which didn't belong to China. Um, there has been pressure against the Philippines. Um, and all the while, um, you know, they, they don't see an American pushback. Um, so I think that they believe that uh, we're not in a position to stop them. I'm not saying they're right, um, but I'm saying that's their mentality. Uh, and their mentality is extraordinarily dangerous. And if you want to add some other factors to this, I think that Xi Jinping and I think certainly uh, people around him are starting to see a closing window of opportunity for China to accomplish historic goals. you got the plunging property prices, the sector um, contracting economy, a falling currency, worsening food shortages, deteriorating environment, and these COVID-19 outbreaks that are beyond control. So, um, and then, then you have the demographic crisis for China, which, uh, you know, China is now 1.41 billion people. Um, two Chinese demographers last year said that China will probably lose half its population in 45 years. If you do some of the arithmetic on the total fertility rate, you know, China could be one third as populous at the end of this century as it is now. That has to affect the way Chinese leaders are viewing the situation. So you, you see that they, they don't respect the U.S., they realize they've got only so much time in which to act. Um, they believe, um, you know, this imperial Chinese notion that they're the only legitimate rulers in the world. And you start putting all this together and you've got to worry. One thing, Brian, look, I, I don't know what's 100 percent. I can't tell you what's in Xi Jinping's 
mind. But I can tell you what he's doing. He is engaged in the fastest military buildup since the Second World War. He's trying to sanction-proof his regime. And we saw a lot of these activities in the second half of this year. And he is mobilizing China's civilians for war. So I can see what he's doing. Um, and so I can see that we're not preparing ourselves. Uh, we have no sense of urgency in the Oval Office or in the Pentagon. Um, this is an extraordinarily dangerous situation. But if you look at that part of the world, there, he, China is surrounded by South Korea and Japan. And we now have troops in Australia. We have 11 aircraft carriers. They have two. Where, I mean, where, what advantage do they have for going after Taiwan when, for instance, they send us $550 billion a year in goods? We only spend $150 billion going the other way. Uh, they own a trillion dollars of our debt. What's what's advantage to them to to uh, to go after Taiwan? What what do they do once they get it? Taiwan represents a critical threat to China. People in Taiwan self-identify as Taiwanese. About eighty percent self-identify as Taiwanese only. Maybe somewhere, and that number's been going up. And the number that's been going down is those who identify themselves as Chinese only. That's below 5% these days. But in China itself, they view the people in Taiwan as Chinese. The core argument of the Communist Party of China is that the Chinese people are not ready to govern themselves. And so therefore, they need this totalitarian state. Well, you can maintain that argument if you totally control all information, Truman Show like. But the point is the people in China know what's going on in Taiwan. They see a vibrant democracy. They see a uh, vigorous economy. They see a society that is admired around the world. This is a critical threat to the most important narrative of the Communist Party, which means that they want to eliminate that. They not only want to eliminate, they believe they have to eliminate that. Um, this is, by the way, the North Korea-South Korea problem. Uh, North Korea says, oh, we're all Koreans. But, you know, we can see a very prosperous South Korea and a not prosperous North Korea. Well, it's the same thing. And that means that it doesn't matter whether they make a ton of money on selling stuff. The Chinese make a ton of money on selling stuff to us or any of this other stuff. They need to eliminate uh, the, the bad example of Taiwan. So what happens, though, let's say they go to war and they got Taiwan and they lose everybody around them. They lose the United States. They lose the Europeans. What do they have then? What's the advantage? Well, if they think that they can um, run their society by themselves, and Xi Jinping has actually been closing off China now for quite some time, um, a continuation of policies in Hu Jintao, but Xi Jinping has certainly accelerated um, the severing of links they're Chinese. They believe that, you know, Xi Jinping believes that um, the rest of the world will come to terms with China. And so um, if you come with that mentality, uh, which is evident from the things that he says and does, then you don't really care. You can weather it out. Um, and um, so that's why I think we, we, you know, we don't, as I said, 100% know what's in his mind. But we can see the things that he says and does, and that tells us that's the way he feels. So um, 
he he does a number of things um, if he takes Taiwan. Uh, just a couple of them. Um, you know, first of all, um, he then has a reliable route to surge his Navy and his Air Force into the Western Pacific. Um, he, um, um, I think he takes down America as a global power because after the catastrophic withdrawal from Afghanistan, um, Taiwan has become the test of credibility, not just in the region, but around the world. Um, remember, um, we um, had the Budapest Memorandum. Essentially, we agreed to defend Ukraine's borders. We didn't do that. Um, you know, if they take Taiwan, um, I think countries around the world look at the U.S. and say, yeah, they're powerful. They got a big military, but they are totally useless as an ally. You know, the, the, the phrase that people use is that, uh, and this is a reversal of what the Marine Corps says, you know, it is dangerous to be an American friend. It is um, very good to be America's enemy. That's the way they think in Beijing. I'm not saying they're right. I think they're wrong. But it doesn't matter what I think. It matters what they think. And they have this very dangerous attitude. Um, and I actually do think that they would be right if they were to take Taiwan and show the United States is not willing to defend its friends. Moving off the topic of war for a moment, uh, there's several other things I want to ask you about. Confucius Institute. If my numbers are right, there were in 100 universities in the country. They're now down to 18. They're going down even farther. What happened to the Confucius Institute and what was it? Well, Confucius Institutes were funded by essentially the United Front Work Department of the Communist Party, which is um, the arm of the party which, intend, which influences um, foreigners. And um, these were you know, basically pretty small units on college campuses with a little bit of funding from nominally the central government of China, but really from the Communist Party. Um, and, um, you know, they're basically teaching Chinese language, a little bit of Chinese culture. Um, but they had enormous influence because a lot of universities um, would not allow, for instance, um, criticism of China. Um, because they were worried of funding on not only the Confucius Institute, but the flow of Chinese students who were paying full tuition. The numbers of Confucius Institutes have dropped dramatically. Um, the party is trying to rebrand them to keep a presence on campus, but under a different moniker. And in that regard, they've been fairly successful. Um, so this is a continual struggle. But, you know, there's not only Confucius Institutes, there are Confucius classrooms in our secondary school, and there are hundreds of those. I think in my hometown, there's a grade school that has a Confucius element to it. Um, <clears throat> I can't swear by it. I remember reading about it. But in the end, why would any school in the United States allow a Communist Party-funded organization in? <laughs> I, I have no idea. Uh, um, you got to ask them that because this to me is a mystery. But it, I think it probably has something to do with wanting Chinese students on campus paying full tuition. There are, they're down, but there are 300,000 uh, Chinese students in universities in this country today, at least. Uh, what do you think of that and what impact does that have? Okay, there were, um, before the pandemic, there was 
about 387,000, 390,000, um, depending on the count. I don't know what it is today um, because of the pandemic and because of um, restrictions that the U.S. has placed on visas. Um, some of those restrictions, I think, are absolutely necessary. I mean, we should not allow anyone who's in the Chinese military to come into the U.S. on a student visa, which has been happening. Um, I, I think the Chinese students are the most difficult issue, um, at least for me, to try to resolve. Um, because, you know, my dad was a Chinese student. Um, but I, I do think, though, that, um, you know, there, we've seen these numbers about 13% of Chinese students on American campuses engage in espionage against the United States. Um, and that's an unacceptably large number. Um, my um, sense, the way to deal with this is, first of all, we've got to remember Chinese students they don't want to commit espionage. Um, they don't want to take away First Amendment rights from other people. But they basically are forced to because they are closely monitored by Chinese consular officials and Ministry of State security agents. Um, and they, um, you know, this is our country. Why we allow Chinese diplomats and um, agents to do this on, on our soil just is beyond me. But we have allowed this. Administration in, administration out, Republicans, Democrats, liberals, conservatives, we've allowed the Chinese to violate our sovereignty. So if you're a Chinese student um, and, and someone from the Communist Party says, um, you know, we're going we're gonna to coerce your parents, throw them in jail unless you steal. Yeah, of course they're going to steal. Um, but we're allowing this. I think the first thing to do is to, to make sure that um, you know, we, we eliminate the Ministry of State security agents from our country, toss them all out or jail them or whatever. We confine the diplomats um, to their consular or their embassy locations. We severely reduce the number of them. Um, and then we figure out how things are going with Chinese students. And I think that there will be a substantial improvement from our perspective. And um, you know, we won't see these incidents on campus where Chinese students, um, you know, run after the Tibetans or run after whoever, um, because this is this is core American freedom on a core American institution, you know, colleges and universities. Um, we can't permit this. So if we can't stop that, then we can't have Chinese students in our country. But I am I am positive we can stop that because Chinese students, they want to get an education. Um, you know, some of them, I'm sure, want to get out of China, especially now. Um, so I think that this is a great pool of, of Americans. And, and let's remember, the most patriotic Americans are not people who were born here. They're people like my dad and my wife who had to struggle under really horrible circumstances at home, who made a, you know, who sometimes in some cases risked their lives to get to the United States. And, and they understand the value of freedom and, and the right to govern oneself. So, um, you know, I want Chinese students in our country. Um, I just don't want them doing what they've been doing up to now because, but as I said, that's our fault, I think, not theirs. But do we have anything really to worry about if we have an open society? Whether they're Chinese or Indian or Iranian or whatever, I mean, <clears throat> things are wide open. What are they gonna really learn that matters? 
But, you know, it's not what they learn. Um, and even what they learn and take away, um, that's that's okay, too. But, you know, outright espionage, like downloading, um, um, you know, massive amounts of material, um, some of which they have absolutely no right to, and then sending it back home, that's a problem. Um, so that's that's what we're concerned about. That's that 13% number that some people estimate. Um but, you know, an open society is very important. That's what made America strong. But it's also a weakness that the Communist Party exploits. And so um, when our republic is in mortal danger, and I think that it is, then we have got to take some steps to defend ourselves. And unfortunately, some of those steps will require closing off parts of American society. Um, it's unfortunate, but I think that at this point it's necessary. When things get better, then we can relax and we can go back to the way we were. Um, but right now, I think that we're in, in real trouble. What part of the world do you live in normally? I live in Bedminster, New Jersey, um, which is about an hour southwest of New York City. It is on the outer edge of the metropolitan area. Where I live, I don't think anybody or very few people commute into New York. Though I think we probably are um, uh, technically part of the metropolitan area for statistical purposes. Um, and um, I, we love it out there. Where did you You know, meet? Bedminster, of course, is, is known not for the home of Gordon Chang, but it's known for Trump's golf course. But that's the rich side of town. And a few horses. <laughs> and a few horses. Yeah. And a few horses. Where, yes. where did you meet your wife? I met my wife in Hong Kong. Um, I was um, a partner in Baker McKenzie, an American law firm, um, and uh, she was uh, she was an associate. But I have to say that she was working for somebody else, so it was not sexual harassment. And do you have children? I've got a ch child from a prior marriage, um, but Lydia and I do not. And I know you're private about this, but what kind of work does your child do? How old is your uh, daughter and, and what kind of work does she do? My daughter is now 42. She lives in Charmony in France. Um, she uh, was a photographer, still does a little bit of that. She teaches yoga. Um, she, she has she's a she has great photographic talent, but she doesn't have an interest in it, which drives her father insane <laughs> because I wish I had one tenth of her talent because um, I'd be a photographer uh, instead of a writer. But be that as it may, she's a great kid. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm very proud of her. So I wish you were a photographer. Back to China, and, and I'm looking for brief explanations on a number of things, <clears throat> try to get some insight. When we hear about Uyghurs, where do they live? What is the sensitivity around them? And what have the Chinese government done to them? The Uyghurs are a Turkic minority, um, and they're the largest of the Turkic minorities. There's Kazakhs, and, and there, there are others. They live in what Beijing calls the Uyghur, um, uh, the Uyghur Autonomous Region, um, which is the northwestern part of the country. 
many Uyghurs believe that they live in East Turkestan, which is a separate country. Um, and that's because they were conquered by Mao Zedong. Um, so with an act of force, they were forcibly annexed into the People's Republic. Uh, so in this in the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region, um, Beijing has been committing acts that can constitute genocide as defined in the Genocide Convention of 1948. Um, that's the intentional elimination of uh, a uh, minority cons- uh, consciousness. Um, and they're also committing crimes against humanity. There's the forcible detention of somewhere between one and three million Uyghurs. Um, there's been executions in those camps. We know that because China's built a crematorium between two of those detention facilities. We know that there has been rape of Uyghur women as official policy. There's torture, imprisonment of children, and forced labor, which in some cases approximates slavery and their child labor. Um, and that's what we know about. Um, I'm sure that there's been worse. Um, but this is uh, this is a stain on humanity. Coming to the next question in kind of an odd way, but for years we had a lot of stars who were representing their concern about Tibet. One, why? Two, how many Tibetans are there? And what's what's the the future of, of that part of China? Okay, in the in the what Beijing calls the Tibetan Autonomous Region, which is the southwest part of the country, it's not only the Tar, as it's called, it's also Qinghai Province and parts of Sichuan. So it's a major portion of what is now considered to be inside the People's Republic. Tibet, like um, East Turkestan, was conquered by Mao Zedong 1950, 1951, at the beginning of the People's Republic. Um, and Beijing has been um, without mercy. Um, um, moving against the Tibetans, trying to eliminate Tibetan um, culture, uh, identity, religion, um, and it has been horrific. Tibet was sort of like where China developed uh, the means of control that are now being applied in um, Xinjiang, East Turkestan. And um, it is a tragedy, which is, um, at, you know, one time did catch our attention, but now is is not. And we have to um, remember that this is the way that the People's Republic will deal with uh, others if it ever has the opportunity to do it. It's the, you know, the way they treat their minorities is the best indication of the way they'll deal with non-Chinese around the world. You know, it's interesting if you look around all the controversial places, Hong Kong, around 7 million people. Tibet, around 3.5, 4 million people. Uyghurs, I don't know what the total number is, but you suggest one between 1 and 3 million have been persecuted up there. And then Taiwan's only 25 million people, and you're talking about China with 1.4 billion. Why do they care so much about these little groups compared to the size of a country like that? The little groups are on the periphery of China. And the Chinese know that, um, um, you know, they're, China goes through periods of expansion and contraction. And I think that it's probably hit the maximum um, level. And it's now, I think, having problems along its periphery. And, and, and that's part of the reason. With regard to Tibet, 
The other reason is it controls the high ground with regard to India and controls the source of rivers that flow into Russia, into, you know, the Yangtze flows through China um, and the rivers that flow through India and Southeast Asia. So that's that's important there. Xinjiang from a geostrategic um, is important because that's where, you know, the the road and the railway connections between China and Central Asia go. You know, they got the Belt and Road program. Um, originally, that was to connect China with Europe. Well, the land connections, in other words, the belt portion of Belt and Road, um, all go through Xinjiang. I have to admit that I used to think it was Belton Road. And, of course, I looked it up. And you're saying Belt and Road. And that is a program I want to ask you about. What is it? How many places in the world are they doing what they're doing with Belt and Road? Yeah, in 2013, in two separate speeches, Xi Jinping announced um, the uh, the belt, and then he announced the road. The belt is um, the the routes to Europe through Central Asia. The road is the 21st century maritime Silk Road. That's the routes that go through um, the Straits of Malacca, India, um, around Africa, or through the Red Sea. To Europe, and now, of course, it's been expanded. About 135 countries have signed Belt and Road memoranda, though not all of those, I think, have Belt and Road projects. But there's been a lot of them. Um, Belt and Road has been extended beyond just connecting China to Europe. It's now the entire world. Um, they also got a space Belt and Road, so you know it's basically the universe. Um, and you know those guys aren't kidding, by the way. Um, you know, 2018, uh, China's space officials started talking about the moon and Mars as sovereign Chinese territory. So you, this is the most um, ambitious group of aggressors in history. So, but basically the Belt and Road is the tie um, the the world to China. We know relatively a lot about China and almost nothing about India. Now, that's me saying that just based on what you see on, you know, in the media and all that. I mean, you, you can find out about India, but you don't have the same kind of romance with uh, you do with China. Why is that? They're exactly the same size and population. One's a communist country. The other is a, a democracy. Help us out. Yeah, that, that's a great question. And that's another question of yours that I have no answer to, because India is endlessly fascinating in its own right. And um the people who are endlessly fascinated with India is a much smaller subset of humanity than those who are endlessly fascinated with China. Um, it, it, I don't know. You know, it's it's um, we Americans, for instance, have have always been fascinated with China, um, and I think part of it is because if we go back three four hundred years, China really was a wonder to behold, and India was not. Um, and so um, maybe that's the origin of it. Um, but each of these cultures is, I, I think, just uh, exotic and, and uh, complex and, as I said, fascinating. You uh, lived in China for a couple of decades. Where did you live besides Hong Kong? Okay. I lived in, I lived in Hong Kong for 10 years, 81 to 91. Um, for the five years following, I lived in San Diego, but spent a good portion of my time in Hong Kong and in China. 
And then from August 96 to May 2001, we lived in Shanghai. So, um, but, you know, during that time, it was all focused on, on Asia. And I was practicing law um, then, all except for the last year. I stopped practicing law as the 1999 became 2000. I can remember going to a big uh, New Year's bash in Hong Kong, and they were ticking off the end of the century. You know, and, and while people were saying, you know, 1098 and thinking, oh, it's going to be a new century, I was thinking, I got 10 seconds more left to be a lawyer, nine seconds left to be a lawyer. And um, when it became 2000, I became a writer. Why'd you quit? Um, I quit because a couple things. Um, first of all, um, I practiced law for 25 years. Um, I had all the money I needed. Um, my daughter decided not to go to an American university, which meant she wasn't requiring $80,000 a year. Um, she went to the London Institute in London, which meant it cost me like $1,500 a year. Um, my wife and I don't really have um, big, um, you know, big requirements. And I had always since high school wanted to write a book. This is, there, and there are a lot of reasons why. Um, but the most important was, I had always wanted to write a book, but I had never anything to say. When um, we landed in China, about three months, couple months afterwards, I realized I had something to say. And I said, I could practice law, but then at that time, I'd have to stop practicing at 65 and I wouldn't know what to do with myself. If I didn't write the book that I had in my head, I knew that somebody would. And I knew that if somebody wrote the book and not me, then I would just be kicking myself for the rest of my life. So I had a perfect opportunity. Um, and so I said, I'm going to write the book, which became The Coming Collapse of China. And the origin of it is when we arrived, Lydia and I arrived in Shanghai in uh, uh, August 1996, I can remember um, Lydia getting on the phone and saying, Mom, China's not communist anymore. And... I agreed with her, um, but as we worked in China, as we traveled around, as we talked to people, as we saw things, we realized that China was communist. And not only was it communist, but it was headed in the wrong direction. So that's why I wrote the book. You know, I, I can remember my clients coming, you know, coming into Shanghai, um, going to the Grand Hyatt in Pudong, like one of the most spectacular hotels in the world and saying to me, China's not communist anymore. So um, I thought that I had, um, I had a view which was certainly a distinctly minority one. You know, certain Chinese in, in China were saying the same thing, um, but it was not a view that was held outside China. So as I said, it's now or never. Um, and, um, you know, I look back and um, I'm glad I made that decision because, you know, as one grows older, as I am, um, one realizes the value of time. One realizes that uh, you got to do what you think is important. And if you don't do it, it just creates so many problems. So I can be 100% wrong in my views. I can be an idiot. Uh, and a lot of people do call me an idiot. 
But the point is that I'm doing what I think I should be doing. And so therefore, I don't regret it. Um, whether people agree with me or not, um, I'm doing what I think that I was put on this earth to do. Over the years, I've seen you on CNN, MSNBC, Fox News. I've listened to you on the John Batchelor show, seen your columns that you've written. Is there a different way that people look at you today from a political standpoint than they did, say, five or six years ago before the Donald Trump administration? Yeah, I don't think it has anything to do with Trump. Um, I, I've kept my views, you know, my my general orientation. Um, and at one time, you know, going back to George W. Bush, Obama, you know, I was considered um, just at one end of the spectrum, or many people thought on the unacceptable end of one end of the spectrum. Um, but what's happened is um, that spectrum has moved. Um, and the, the notion of what's acceptable thought has changed. Um, so um, that's not to say that I'm right. Um, but it is to say that um, for various reasons, which have to do more with uh, Jiang Zemin, Hu Jintao, Xi Jinping, um, I've become less unacceptable. When was the last time you were in China? November. Well, the last time I was in the People's Republic of China, like mainland, um, was November 2013. I gave a talk to a, a convention of lawyers. And after that, I decided it was too dangerous to go to China. The last time that I was in Hong Kong um, was August 2019. Uh, and... After that, I thought it was too dangerous to go to even Hong Kong. And dangerous so, for what reason? Um, because um, there's a clampdown in Hong Kong. And some people say that the room for acceptable political thought in Hong Kong is narrower than it is in mainland China, um, which I th actually think is right. Um, so, um, you know, in Hong Kong right now, I'd probably be prosecuted under the national security law. Um, which Beijing imposed on Hong Kong. So um, I'd prefer probably not to live the rest of my life in a Chinese jail. Can you help us understand what COVID has meant to China and how they've handled it in the last three years? For how many hours do I have? 16. Go, go after it. Okay. I mean, we don't really understand what's going on inside. Can you help us understand from what your perspective is? Well, at this moment, um, the Chinese people, by and large, have no immunity to the Omicron variants of COVID-19. And it is ripping through China. Um, estimates from virologists and epidemiologists are basically that 60% maybe of the Chinese people will get COVID this winter. Um, we're talking 800 million to 1.1 billion infections, maybe one to two million deaths. Um, you know, we don't know whether it'd be that severe, but the point is that Chinese people right now have no immunity to it um, and, or very little immunity to it. Um, because the two Chinese primary vaccines, uh, Sinopharm and Sinovac, um, they're, they're not very, they were never very effective to start out with, and they don't really protect people against Omicron. So that's why it's ripping through China. What's happened is, from the very beginning of the disease, 
Um, Beijing has tried to use this as a propaganda tool. Um, what they were saying was that their ability to control infections and deaths proved the superiority of Chinese communism over democracy in general and American democracy in particular. So they were going for zero COVID. Um, I mean, and that meant um, trying to prevent any transmission of the disease at all. At the same time, they were not willing to import um, the effective mRNA vaccines from Pfizer and Moderna, um, because that would be an admission. I think the reason why they wouldn't do it was um, they had the money. Um, they just felt, I think, that would be an admission of um, the superiority of Western technology, and that was completely unacceptable. So it's been a propaganda tool, but what's happened recently, um, starting from um, no November 13th, I think it was, and then ending um, this month, um, there have been a series of proclamations, directives, orders that relaxed zero COVID. Now zero COVID is a practical matter, it no longer exists. And, and people say this is a policy change, Brian, but I think that it actually is a capitulation, that uh, the policy just failed. Um, the World Health Organization says that the relaxation of Chinese disease control measures did not lead to this surge in disease. They thought it started beforehand. I think that's right. I think that uh, Xi Jinping, who is the author of Zero COVID, just realized he was, it was a failure. But there's a couple other things that don't really get talked about. Of course, there was the extraordinary protests that we just discussed. Um, the Chinese people said, we're not having it. Um, but more important, I think that the, lo the, the uh, localities which were forced to pay for zero COVID measures like t constant testing, tra contact tracing, quarantines, they just ran out of money to do it. Um, and also zero COVID was crippling the Chinese economy. Um, and the numbers that we are getting um, for November are just disastrous. Um, for the Chinese economy, even official numbers. So I, I think that they just threw up their hands and they realized that they could no longer maintain this. And they're now just letting it rip. You know, as people have said, um, in the United States, we tried to flatten the curve. Um, in China, they're compressing the curve. And we're going to see how it works. So what during these three years, have their manufacturing system continued when they're we're working to zero COVID? Um, zero COVID has um, put crimps into Chinese manufacturing and the supply chain. Um, there were, um, you know, export-oriented factories or maybe operating some of them at 30% of capacity, some more. Um, but, you know, we've seen the shutdowns of, um, you know, the big plants. What also was more important maybe was logistics, you know, they closed the big container ports for a little while in places like Shanghai and Ningbo. Um, but really, the main problem were truckers, um, because truckers to get to the ports had to pass through nu numerous COVID checkpoints. And a positive test at those checkpoints would have meant that they would have been quarantined for weeks far away from home. So a lot of truckers just took themselves um, and decided to stay home. Um, and, and that has certainly affected supply chains. Um, and we're seeing some of that right now as well because of the uh, most recent surge. Um, but that was just one of the factors that I think convinced a lot of companies that they had to make their supply chains more resilient. In other words, to develop alternative sources of supply. And even Apple, which has the most difficult to move supply chains, 
has been reducing its uh, manufacturing footprint in China because I think they've had no choice. I mean, these, these COVID protests actually started in a Foxconn facility in Zhengzhou in central China. Um, it's called iPhone City, um, made, makes more than half the world's iPhones. Um, but workers just, uh, you know, starting end of October, just started climbing over the fences, just getting out of the place, running through the fields. Um, and that was that was the first sign that the Chinese people were just not going to accept zero COVID anymore. And what was really fascinating, Brian, was not that the workers were scrambling over uh, the walls. It was that the people around the facility were helping the workers flee. So you had truckers, you had people in the communities, and, and the people who were helping the workers flee were doing so at great risk to themselves. So that was a real indication that Chinese society um, decided that it was going to turn its back on zero COVID. After building tremendous housing developments, apartment buildings, today, how many of those apartments are empty? Um, probably more than half. Um, the, the, the factor that is important... The, the, the reason why most of them are empty is because the owners have wanted to keep them empty. Even in a time of rising, sharply rising property prices, these apartments were empty. And they were empty because the Chinese people were considering them to be stores of value. So if you can't export your money out of the country, and they can't uh, readily, um, they have to, they can go into the stock market, which many of them don't want to be there. Um, but really, the, the main way of storing value was buying vacant apartments. And they would not rent them out because renting them out would reduce the value of the apartment. So uh, right now, something like 70 percent of the uh, wealth of middle class Chinese are tied up in vacant apartments in property. And so this is what's, what's important here is that starting the first six months of this year, we saw property declines, value declines. 25, 30 percent year on year. But uh, as important, sales just plummeted as well by similar figures. So and that's continued on the second half of this year, as you can imagine. Um, and it really means that um, the Chinese people aren't very happy right now because um, these apartments um, are uh, their their main source of wealth are declining in value. Going to let you go uh, soon. A couple uh, other questions. Richard Nixon's opening to China, good or bad? Good at the time. Um, people forget, um, critics of the regime like me, forget that uh, we were in a very difficult time in the 1970s. And um, it was important to wean away the Chinese from the Soviets. And so the end of the Cold War ended up two against one. Your opinion on whether or not we will be in a fighting war at some point with China, and what do you think the American people's reaction will be if their sons and daughters are sent over to defend Taiwan? Um, I actually think the probability of war is high. Um, I think it's high because China's preparing for war. The regime sees a closing window of opportunity. Xi Jinping is arrogant. And we Americans are acting like, um, you know, people in democracies before great wars. We're just trying to do everything possible to avoid it. 
and thereby we are emboldening the worst actors in the international system. So I, I see that there's terrible times ahead. I hope it's not true. Um, I, but you know, we're, we're Americans. Um, and so we believe that we're entitled to be oblivious to what our enemies say. You know, um, the terrorists killed six people in February 1993 by detonating a bomb in below the North Tower of the World Trade Center. We didn't care. We didn't care until 9-11 when um, Osama bin Laden killed 2,000, what, 799 Americans, something like that. Um, we, we just believe that we're entitled to be oblivious. And so we don't pay attention to what our enemies did. That's why we have December 7th, 1941. That's why we have September 11th, 2001, because we were not paying attention to what our enemies are saying. And the reason why I say that is because we're not paying attention to what the Chinese are now saying. They declared a people's war, quote unquote, on us in May 2019. Um, that's important. Um, we Americans don't know about that, but the Chinese believe that way. Second part of that, what will be the reaction in this country if our sons and daughters are sent over there to fight to protect Taiwan? I don't know. Um, I also don't think that anyone knows. Remember, in 1950, Dean Acheson, Secretary of State, one of the great secretaries of state uh, in our history, um, publicly drew America's Western defense perimeter to not include South Korea. Up until that time, Kim Il-sung, the leader of North Korea, could not get either Joseph Stalin or Mao Zedong to give him the green light to invade South Korea because both Stalin and Mao said, you're going to have to fight the Americans and we're not prepared to do that now. So what happens? They hear Dean Acheson, Kim Il-sung gets the green light, and what do we do? Within hours, Truman sends American troops to defend South Korea. 1950, people will say, oh, that's a long time ago. Well, let's go to 1990. 1990, April Glasby, our ambassador to Iraq, has a conversation with Saddam Hussein. Saddam Hussein asks the question, what will happen, what will your reaction be if I invade uh, Kuwait? He didn't put it in quite those terms, but that's what he was saying. April Glasby, acting on the instructions of, I think it was James Baker, Secretary of State, said something like this, um, and this is almost a direct quote. We Americans have no interest in the settlement of intra-Arab disputes. Saddam Hussein obviously took that as a green light. Eight days later, he invades Kuwait. What do we Americans do? We defend Kuwait. So what will happen with regard to Taiwan? You know, Biden can say, you know, we're not going to defend Taiwan. He doesn't say that, by the way. He says we will. But Biden can say he could come out and say we're not going to defend Taiwan. Xi Jinping could take that as a green light and we'll probably end up defending Taiwan. Um, I don't know what Americans will say, but um, this is going to be one of those times where I think that even we Americans will realize that this is not a war in Taiwan. This is a war against the United States. Final a couple of questions. Where can someone who is interested in either reading or listening to or watching Gordon Chang find you on a regular basis? Well, on an irregular basis at C-SPAN. <laughs> um, I tweet at Gordon G. Chang, G-O-R-D-O-N-G-C-H-A-N-G. 
and I archive my articles for free at my website, www.gordonchang.com. And how often do you appear on the John Batchelor show as a co-host? Twice a week. Um, on Mondays for two segments, on Wednesdays for four segments. Um, some and, and John Batchelor is one of the, the great, um, great radio hosts. So I'm very privileged to be able to do that. And he is based in New York, and you can hear him, I think. We can hear him here in Washington. I don't know how many other cities. Do you know? Um, since he moved over to CBS, I don't know the specific answer. When he was at uh, Cumulus, which was basically the ABC network, there was about 140 stations. Um, most of the people who listen to Bachelor um, do so on his podcast. Yeah. Which is, he takes his CBS um, segments and he podcasts them. And that's where most people hear them. Gordon Chang, thank you very much for all this time. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thanks for listening to the Book Notes Plus podcast. Please rate and review Book Notes Plus, And don't forget to follow so you never miss an episode. Questions or comments? We would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c-span.org.